Well, if you would open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, we are continuing, as Travis said, our series in the Ten Commandments during this season of Lent. And right at the close of Carson's wonderful teaching last week, he made a point that I want to start at today and kind of build on what he alluded to at the end. And, and to do that, we're going to have to back up to the very first verses of Exodus 20. Um, we'll, we'll pick up in verse 7, but right now look at verses 1 and 2 with me. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that capital Lord there, L-O-R-D in caps, represents God's name. Whenever you see it in your Bibles, that's what it represents. It represents God's name being used. And it's only after God says this, he reminds them of who he is, that he is the God who triumphed over the gods of Egypt and rescued his people from 400 years of slavery, their deliverer. It's only after God has reminded them of who he is that he gives them the commandments. After God recounts in this brief, brief statement the, the loving rescue of his people. Because remember, Israel has been enslaved for the past 400 years in Egypt. And God did bring them out, rescued them from slavery by those 10 miraculous plagues, um, culminating with the blood of a lamb slain on the doorpost of their homes that spared them the dreaded 10th and final plague, the death of the firstborn. And so now for the past three months, they've been wandering and battling and grumbling their way to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, Moses ascended the mountain to meet with God. And there was smoke, and there was lightning, and there was fire atop the mountain. And Moses rejoined the people. And out of that smoke and fire on the mountaintop, God spoke to his people. <clears throat> and the first words that he says are these, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So the first thing God wants on their mind as as the table setting for the commandments, is that he's their rescuer, he's their deliverer, he's their savior. So he speaks to them of love and mercy before he speaks to them of obedience. Right, And that is the pattern, Old and New Testament, before, um, command, before obedience comes mercy and rescue. And then obedience is the response to that. Now, from these verses, these critical verses that open the Ten Commandments, we learn two really important things about these commandments. One, they are the love and care of God for his people. It's not how we think of commandments often, but that's what they are. Um, in love, God has rescued his people. The people sang this lyric to God after their dramatic rescue from Egypt at the Red Sea, and he says, they sang, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. The context for the commands is God's loving rescue. Now think about it. 400 years these people have been slaves. They've been free only three months. They have no idea how to live. None whatsoever. Um, but now at the giving of the commandments, they know. They know who God is and what the life is that he's offering them. It's though God is saying to them, as the Mandalorians put it, this is the way, right? This is the way. 
And the intent is to lovingly show them how to walk in his love, how to live in communion with the God who rescued them. And so in a time when they're desperate to know how to live, how to please their God, God gives his people these 10 words, these 10 commandments. But not only do they convey the love of God to his people, these commandments are the way that his people love him back, right? In, in Deuteronomy, the commandments are in chapter 5, and immediately before those commandments in chapter 4, we read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And so this idea of, of love and command and obedience are intertwined inseparably. Jesus drew the straightest of lines between love and obedience when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Right? Obedience is how we love God back. And so as we journey through these 10 words of, of God in the season of Lent, uh, we want to welcome them as God's good guidance for us, and we want to walk in them uh, because to walk in his commands is to walk in his love. But we also want to look at our own lives and ask ourselves the question, um, how am I doing at loving God back? Because he didn't just rescue the ancients, he has rescued us as well. Um, from the slavery of our sin. Hebrews 7, 25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. So Jesus has saved us from the uttermost. How are we doing at loving him back? And I'd like to look at the third commandment through that lens uh, today. And so Exodus 20, verse 7 is what we'll be looking at, just that one verse. So let me pray for us and we'll, we'll open it up. Lord, be kind to us now by your spirit and your word. Show us the beauty of this good command for us and give us grace and strength to live in it. We pray, amen. Exodus 20, verse seven. You'll have this memorized by the time we're done today. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, last week, Carson raided Martin Luther's library, at least metaphorically, and he came away with four books that are a pattern for how we want to think about the commandments. A textbook, a hymnal, a journal, and a prayer book. The textbook teaches us, gives us instruction about God and his good ways for us. The hymnal, we give thanks and praise back to God for what we've seen. A journal, we look at our own lives and we confess that we have not kept these good commands. And, and then the prayer book is a way of embracing the greater grace that's ours in Christ and praying to honor him through our obedience to the commandment. So we'll start with a textbook. Let's grab the textbook first and see what we learn about God and his ways through this brief third commandment, not to take his name in vain. So again, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So three things I'll draw out of this. Three brief things. First, he has a name, right? Our God has a name and he has shared it with his people. And this in the, that time was extraordinary. So I ran across a prayer that dates roughly from the same time as the Exodus. And it's called the prayer to any God 
and it's supposedly characteristic of the literature of that period, which describes the inability and unknowability of the gods that people were worshiping. Here's how the prayer goes. May my Lord's angry heart be reconciled. May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the goddess I do not know be reconciled. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. May the goddess, whoever she is, be reconciled. O God, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. O goddess, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. I do not know what wrong I've done. I do not know what sin I have committed. I do not know what abomination I have perpetrated. I do not know what taboo I have violated. So basically they're in the dark. They're just spitballing here. They don't know who their God is or what he asks of them. But now Yahweh has revealed that name, his name, to his people. And Carmen Imes writes, this is a big deal. Most gods were known by a pseudonym that kept others at arm's length. Knowing the proper divine name offered access to power. And she cites an ancient Egyptian myth called the legend of, of, of Isis and Re. And one god is trying to get control of another, but he, he can't get the upper hand without knowing the other god's real name. But she says Yahweh, rather than hiding his name and maintaining a measure of distance, invites Moses into his council, and Moses and the Hebrews are welcome to address Yahweh directly. She says it's like they're on a first-name basis, right? And so the name in view here is Yahweh, and again, that is what Lord in caps, all caps, represents in the Old Testament in your Bibles. It's God's personal name that he first revealed to Moses famously in that burning bush encounter in Exodus 3. It went like this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So God has revealed his personal name to his people, and as one writer put it, God's name is synonymous with his godness. It reflects his character and his reputation, his authority and his essence. Um, this is so much the case that when the Old Testament refers to God, the idea of God and his name are virtually interchangeable in the Old Testament. Psalm 115 verse 1 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Right? So who's getting the glory? Not us, but God. But it doesn't say God gets the glory. It says his name gets the glory because those ideas are interchangeable. Right? The eternal Sovereign, forever existent, one who is with his people, Yahweh. And that's how names work, right? If you run down Larry, you're running down me. And if you praise Larry, you're praising me. That's, that's who I am. I am Larry. And Yahweh is God. And he's revealed himself to us at that level. So there's a second thing we learn from this command. 
You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So he reveals his name to us, and we can misuse it, right? The command's a negative one. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Or some of your Bibles say, don't misuse the name. Um, and the very idea of misusing the Lord's name was so weighty to Jews that they would not write or speak the name. Instead, they would simply use Lord Adonai or the name Hashem in its place, right? They wouldn't even write it or speak it. It was such a weighty idea that they could misuse it. And so that should, that, their example should perk up our ears here. There's something very sacred about God's name, right? So what does it mean to misuse God's name, to take the Lord's name in vain. And we often think of cursing or using God's name flippantly, which fits well with that idea of vanity, of emptying God's names of meaning and substance. Um, Carmen Iams tells a story from her childhood. She says, I grew up thinking that taking the Lord's name in vain was using Jesus or God as a swear word. At our house, even gosh or holy cow cost me a fat 25 cents. Both were too irreverent. Cows aren't holy, my dad would say. And she says, of course he was right. But there's definitely a sense in which we are right to recognize that this command warns against cursing or flippant or deceptive use of God's name. Definitely, we're put on alert against such speech. It makes you wonder if OMG is your best response on Twitter, right? But if we think that speech is the heart of the matter with this command, I'd like to suggest we should rethink it a little bit. Um, I've already quoted from a wonderful book by Carmen Joy Imes called Bearing God's Name. If you were going to read one book on the Ten Commandments and related stuff during Lent, this is the book I'd recommend that you read. Um, it's a delightful, delightful, rich, well-written read. Um, and her thinking has been super helpful for me, so I'm going to cite her a good bit today. But she suggests that we might better adjust the translation of this verse ever so slightly. This is how she translates the verse. You must not bear or carry the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For Yahweh will not hold guiltless one who bears or carries his name in vain. Right? And she gets this from Exodus 28 where a priest would bear the names of the sons of Israel before the Lord as he entered into the tabernacle with their names engraved on his apron or his breastplate. The same language. He would bear their names as he walked in there because they were engraved on that apron. And he had the name of Yahweh on his forehead. And so, in like fashion, they and we are to bear the name of the Lord before the watching world, right? Professor Imes says, uh, at Sinai, he warns the people not to bear his name in vain. Keeping this command then involves much more than not saying, oh, Yahweh, when someone cuts in front of you on the freeway, or a disgruntled Jesus Christ when your team misses a touchdown pass. Keeping the command not to bear Yahweh's name in vain changes everything about how we live. 
She goes on to write, Yahweh is the only God worthy of worship. Israel must see itself as belonging to him and representing him to the world. To bear his name in vain would be to enter into this covenant relationship with him, but to live no differently than the surrounding pagans. Pastor Ligon Duncan takes a similar angle when he says, I want you to see that this command is broader than just the speaking of God's name or the writing of God's name. It's as expansive, he says, as life itself. This command speaks of any claim we make relating to God's name, such as the claim to be his people. If we claim to be the people of God and then live as if we are not, we take his name in vain. If we, if we claim to be Christians and then live as if we are not, we take his name in vain. He says, we see then just an inkling of how broad this command is. It stretches to every area of life. If we dishonor the name of the Lord and how we live, whether it be through our lips or whether it be through unfaithfulness in our vocation, whether it be through unloving behavior which bears poor witness to the world, then we're breaking the third commandment. And now we're getting at the heart of the matter. Right? What does it mean to bear the Lord's name in vain? In a word, we could call it hypocrisy. And some of you are thinking, oh, good. Because I'm not a hypocrite. hypocrite. I can't say it. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm here in church with God's people. So I'm not a hypocrite. I'm where I'm supposed to be. But the, it's really not just about Sunday mornings, is it? Right? Don't get me wrong. Really important, super important to gather together for worship. Vital. Um, but what happens when you walk out of those doors and you get in your car and you head home there, there in your home, when you go tomorrow to work or to school there, that is where you bear the name, right? And some of us are bearing it in vain there. It's how you treat your family and your coworkers and your neighbors. This is where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. That is where we are to bear the name, not in vain. So there's a police officer. The story goes, he pulled a driver over comes up beside the car, gets license and registration, and the driver says, what's wrong, officer? I, I didn't go through any red lights. I certainly wasn't speeding. He says, no, you weren't. But I saw you waving your fist as you swerved around the lady driving in the left lane, and I further observed you flushed and angry face as you shouted at the driver of the Hummer who cut you off, and how you pounded on your steering wheel when your traffic came to a stop near the bridge. He says, is that a crime, officer? No, but when I saw the Jesus loves you and so do I bumper sticker in your car, I figured this car had to be stolen. <laughs> now we laugh, uh, but somehow I doubt Jesus is laughing. Right? He didn't find hypocrisy all that funny. Not at all. All but one use of the term hypocrite in our English Bible is found on the lips of Jesus. And those occurrences are accompanied by some of his most blistering language. If, if these expressions were on anybody else's lips, we'd rebuke them for making such harsh and unloving remarks. Listen to what Jesus has to say about hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte or convert, and when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. 
Just a little bit farther in the same chapter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So at the heart of misusing God's name, of bearing his name in vain, is our hypocrisy. Places in our lives where we, though we profess Christ, we live like we do not. Right? Now there's a third thing from the textbook this morning, and that is we do this at our peril. Right? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And there's a deeply troubling account regarding the Lord's name in Leviticus 24. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed, and then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debri and the, the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. And if I remember right, he was put to death. Um, and I'm not saying you're going to die if you use the Lord's name in vain. But we are not under the law of Moses in that way, mercifully. But can we at least say that this clearly is not a joking matter? Right? This is serious. The punishment for vain naming is not specified. But it's a sobering thought to not be held guiltless. And if you've ever carried around guilt and shame, and who hasn't, you know what that feels like. And the command says, if you take the name in vain and you live there, the command says you live in a place that's guilt-ridden. So let's review what we've learned from our textbook, and let's grab the hymn book and give thanks to God for what we see here. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Our God has made himself known to his people by his own name. And in the Old Testament, we see it expressed as Yahweh. And he's given it to us to bear. Now, a fascinating connection made by no less a scholar than Gordon Fee. And he's a big dog scholar in the New Testament, trust me. He proposes that when Philippians 2 says that Jesus has a name that's above every name. You remember it, perhaps? Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The reference is not simply there to the name Jesus, but it's a quote from Isaiah 45, where the name of Yahweh is used in this exact same way. And in essence, Jesus and the name Yahweh are now being fused together. So the name that Jesus is being given that's above every name is not just Jesus, it's Yahweh. It's the name of the one true God. And so Jesus is now bearing the name of Yahweh, fulfilling Israel's role and showing us how we are to bear the name. See, for Christians, then, bearing the name of Jesus is bearing the name of Yahweh. And thanks be to God that we don't worship at the tomb of some unknowable God, 
He has made his name, his very self, known to his people. And he's done this supremely in the incarnation of Jesus, who audaciously said in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Our God has a name. In the Old Testament, it's Yahweh. And in the New Testament, we see it in the name Jesus. And we get to bear it. We're given the unspeakable privilege of bearing the name of Jesus to a watching, needy, broken world. That's why you work where you work. That's why you live where you live. And if you go to school, it's why you go to school where you go to school. You're there to bear the name of our God in word and loving deed. So you need to bear it well, church. You need to bear it well there. Listen again to Carmen Imes, Professor Imes, as she writes about being a people chosen to bear God's name to others. She says the purpose of covenant election is to provide a visual model of people who are rightly related to the creator God, Yahweh. She says too often we think of election as a matter of being picked to be saved. But in scripture, election is more like a game of what she calls blob tag. I've never called it that, but you'll recognize it as she writes about it. She says, in blob tag, if I'm it and I tag you, then we're both it. We run around holding hands together and try to tag as many others as we can who join hands with us and continue tagging others until everyone has been tagged. In this game, the essence of itness is to tag others. So too, she says, the essence of election and therefore the essence of the believer's vocation is to represent God by mediating his blessing to others. Once we are it, we don't lean back in our recliners glad that someone picked us. No, to be it is to tag others. And to be elect, to be his, is to bear his name among the nations, to demonstrate by our lives that he is king and to mediate his blessing to others. That's the whole point of being chosen, of being elect. So this is our calling and our privilege to bear the name of our God well, where we work and live and play. So now let's grab the journal and the prayer book and let's reflect on what needs mending in our lives in light of this commandment. And again, I'll share you a story um, that Professor Iams shared. She says, one afternoon several years ago, we lived in North Carolina. I was grocery shopping with the kids. We made it back out to the car and I was trying to get everything loaded up. I had asked the kids to get in their seats and get buckled, but they were moving as slow as molasses and bickering with each other. I went to put the shopping cart away and when I came back, they still weren't in their seats. I completely lost it, she says. What is wrong with you people? Did you not hear me? Get in your seats this instance. This is ridiculous. I slammed the van door, turned around just in time to see the secretary from the kids' public school walking past. She says a big reason we enrolled our kids in public school was so that our family, our family could share Christ with unbelievers. I volunteered every week. My husband ate regularly with the kids in the lunchroom, and we were present at as many activities as possible. Then in one moment of anger, all we had worked for was tarnished by my temper. I thought I was in an anonymous place where I could let it all out with no consequences. But I learned that we don't get to pick and choose when we bear his name. So how is name bearing going for you? Again, 
Ligon Duncan reminds us of its scope. He says, to take up God's name in vain means any frivolous or insincere or thoughtless or unsubstantial use of his name. It might mean irreverent humor, which mocks God. It might be blasphemy or cursing or a broken oath, but it means more even than that. It could mean professing faith in Christ and claiming to be a Christian and receiving baptism and yet walking in worldliness. Denying our profession by our lives, that is a breaking of the third commandment. How's name-bearing going in your life? I mean, this is what we pray about every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. And we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We are praying that the name would be born well in our lives, that we would show it as holy to everyone we encounter. So every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying that we would honor and keep this commandment. And so what I'd like to do as we close is just take a couple of minutes and confess to God any known breaches in our name-bearing and ask for mercy so that we could bear the name well even this day and this week. And I'd like, what I'd like you to do is just for, to pray silently right where you are, and I'd like you to use this little phrase from the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. And I'd like you to walk through your week. I'd like you to go home to your house and your neighborhood, and I'd like you just to pray, Lord, I want your name to be hallowed this week where I live. And if any sin or shortcoming comes to mind, now's the time to confess it. And then I'd like you to go to work or go to school. And I'd like you to say, Lord, how, may your name be hallowed where I work or where, I, where I'm in class. And, and if anything comes to mind, you'd confess it and ask God for mercy to be a better name bearer this week. And so mentally walk through your home and your work your school, your neighborhood, maybe the gym or the park. Pray that little phrase, Lord, may your name be hallowed where I live and work and play this week. Okay? So let's bow and take just a few minutes and walk through your week with the Lord and ask him to help you not bear his name in vain, but to hallow it this week. Let's pray. Lord, as we think back through our week and look ahead at the next one, 
who walks away from this command unscathed. We may not have spoken your name in an irreverent way, but oh, the times we've lived irreverently, anger and fear, pride and lust and all the things, greed that drag us down, that we fall prey to. Lord, have mercy on us. We turn to you. Specifically, Lord Jesus, we turn to you for grace greater than our sin. That all this mess that is our disobedience you bore the penalty for on the cross. And so we worship you. We cling to you. Help us. Have mercy on us. And Holy Spirit, fill us this week so that we could bear the name better this week with that coworker or that neighbor or in the family that we love so and yet we um, don't speak like it or act like it many days. Lord, have mercy on us this week. Fill us, Spirit, with yourself so that your fruit might ripen in our life this week. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, help us bear the name well this week in all the places you've placed us. Have mercy on us, Lord. And as we ready ourselves now to approach the table, we're mindful that this is our Lord's table and that he is the one who has a name that is above every name and that there's salvation in no other name. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that whatever we ask in that name, Jesus, you will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If we ask you anything in your name, you will do it. Even the demons are subject to your name, O Lord. And everyone, everyone in this room who calls on your name will be saved. And it's in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God that we were washed and sanctified and justified. And Jesus, you are the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and you uphold the universe by the word of your power. And after making purifications for sins, you sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name you have inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so now as we come to this table, this is the one we remember and we worship. The one whose fellowship we enjoy at this table. The risen Christ, whose name is above all names. Jesus. This table is open to, at Northwake is open to anyone who's a follower of Jesus, who's walking in fellowship with him. Doesn't mean you're perfect. No one would take here if that were the requirement, but it means that you are willing to forsake your sin and run to Christ for grace greater than your sin. If that's you, then this table, it's open for you. As you come to the table today, I'd like you to use the middle aisle and the wall aisles to approach and these two aisles to return to your seat. And if you need someone to bring the elements to your seat for you, if you'll just uh, flag someone with your uh, bulletin. A number of our people are here to serve you in that way. They'd be glad to bring the elements to you if that serves you well this morning. 
Once you've received your element, if you'll find your way back to your seat and hold it, we'll take it all together as God's people after everyone has been served. So the table is open. Come now and worship and remember the one whose name is above all names.